Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. My favorite story of the week has to do with aliens. They've been in the news recently a lot. An internet campaign to storm Area 51 has been getting a lot of press, and the Navy just confirmed the authenticity of declassified videos that show unidentified aerial phenomenon. For more on aliens, we spoke to Lydia Saad. She's a researcher at Gallup, and she tells us about their latest survey on Americans' thoughts on UFOs. Most Americans are skeptical, but they say that the government knows more than they're letting on. So Gallup has asked about UFOs for a few decades now on and off. And, you know, it's a topic that some people might think is beneath Gallup, you know, but we actually think it's a very serious issue of what America, it taps into what Americans think is going on in the, in the universe and uh, all sorts 100%. of important things. We ask people questions about whether they have seen UFOs, whether they believe they're real, whether they think the government is hiding anything, all sorts of things that are related to this Area 51 phenomenon. And two-thirds in the United States say that the government knows more than they're saying about UFOs. And that leads us kind of right into what this whole, um, you know, Storm Area 51 thing was about. Uh, obviously, it was a hoax started by a guy, but it captured the imaginations of so many people that, you know, really do believe that the government knows more than they're letting on. Sure. So it definitely is tapping into that skepticism about government. Um, and it, 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 for the record, I mean, we find uh, two thirds today saying that the government is hiding something. We asked in 1996 about the same percentage said that then. So this is a perennial belief. It's yeah. not like suddenly Americans are concerned. But there's this there's a baseline skepticism toward the government that makes this kind of a, um, a program uh, appealing to a certain segment of the public. Now, that's uh, dealing with how many people think the government uh, is letting on to how many. What about individuals, people? How do they feel about UFOs? Well, that's where it gets interesting. So, yes, two thirds say the government is hiding something. And we also ask a question, you know, do you think when people see UFOs, they're seeing something real? And a majority say yes to that. But then when we say, do you think that UFOs are actually alien spacecraft visiting Earth from other planets or that all UFO sightings can be explained by something else, such as human activity or natural phenomenon? And there we get only a third, 33% saying that some UFOs are actually alien spacecraft. Most of the rest say it's something else, something that can be explained by human activity. And then you get a residual, you know, a little bit are unsure. So far fewer people out there actually believe in UFOs and think the government is hiding something. Piggybacking off of that, there was this recent report about these three allegedly declassified videos showing U.S. Navy pilots trailing some unidentified flying objects. These videos are a little older, but there was a spokesman for the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare who actually confirmed that these videos are authentic they were not supposed to be released. There was some flub in paperwork or whatnot, but it shows what they call unidentified aerial phenomenon. That's kind of their new term for UFOs. So there is some quote unquote evidence about this. So that's why I love these topics in these conversations, because they lend themselves to your imagination going wild. You guys at Gallup were learning exactly what part of the country also experiences or thinks they see these alien spacecraft more. It's happening more on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast or in the South. So 
we can break out our respondents by four regions of the country, east, midwest, south, and west. So the west is more than just the coast. It would include Arizona and Utah and some of these places where these military installations are. And there we find 41% in the west saying that some US UFOs are alien spacecraft. That compares with only 27% in the midwest and about a third in the east and the south. So you have four in 10 people in the west holding that view, which is notable. And then they are also more likely in the west to say they have personally seen something they believe was a UFO, 20% versus closer to 12 to 15% everywhere else. So the West is definitely more of a hotbed for UFO <laughs> theories. One of the other interesting uh, things that you guys found were Americans with no religious affiliation are more likely to put stock in UFOs, 40% saying they believe in some type of alien visitors. A little bit. So 40% with no religion, but it's still about a third of those who are either Protestant or Catholic or some other Christian religion, which some might say would be contradicting religious beliefs, but you've got a third of Christians saying they think some UFOs are alien spacecraft, but yes, it's higher among the non-religious at 40%. Lydia, give us the bottom line on what you guys learned in this latest survey. So clearly there is an underlying percentage of the public that believes that UFOs are real foreign visitors, the foreign in the uh, UFO version of the word. And that's okay. I mean, there's reason to believe it. I think these stories about the government videos are fascinating to read about. But you have just as many people who say, yeah, the government's hiding something, but these aren't really aliens. You know, the government's probably covering up military secrets or they aren't sure and they don't want to alarm the public. So there's just as many people who are skeptical of the government, but for other reasons. And then you have another third who are like, what's this all about? I don't believe in aliens. The government's not covering anything up. You're all crazy. So that's how we kind of break down. Lydia Saad, researcher for Gallup. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime. NBC Universal has released some of the details of their upcoming streaming service. It's going to launch in April 2020, and the service will be called Peacock. They say they're going to start with more than 15,000 hours of content with library titles like The Office and Parks and Recreation and original content such as reboots of Battlestar Galactica and Saved by the Bell. For more on this, we spoke to Leslie Goldberg. She's the co-host of TV's Top 5 Podcast for The Hollywood Reporter. Well, Peacock takes its name from the iconic NBC logo that is more than 60 years old. Peacock will be an ad-supported platform. Comcast cable subscribers will get Peacock for free. They will have an option to step up to another tier that's ad-free for a small fee. And non-Comcast subscribers will also have an opportunity to buy into the service as well for what I'm told is a different fee. We know that it'll debut in April 2020, but we do not know a specific date. Original programming will launch later in the summer. The entire Comcast portfolio will use the Summer Olympics, which is one of the biggest events of the year, if not the biggest event of 2020 for television. They will use the Olympic Games as a launch pad for Peacock. So expect a lot of promotion around the Olympics for the streaming service and whatever content they will have with originals that will launch after the games are over. I mean, that's going to be a great vehicle for them to get the word out. Obviously, as you mentioned, it's the biggest thing for TV. Everybody's going to be glued to their televisions watching coverage. And that's one of the key concerns is as the field of all these streamers really starts expanding. How do you make a name for yourself? Obviously, one of the big thing is original content, but still, how do you get the word out? And using the Olympics as a foil to that is going to be hugely beneficial to them. 
And you can expect a company-wide promotion behind Peacock. As much as they're going to promote the Olympics, they're going to promote Peacock as well. And you can expect to see ads for both things all across the NBC portfolio. So the broadcast network, the slew of cable brands, USA Network, Sci-Fi, E, Bravo, Oxygen, they will all be promoting this, both of these things. And in terms of how to cut through, I mean, look, the fact that this streamer is something that's going to exist alongside the likes of the Warner Brothers entry, which is HBO Max, Disney Plus, Hulu, and YouTube still is sort of doing originals, though not really. Of course, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu is now controlled by Disney. The piece that's hard to cut through with all of these is what's going to differentiate this streaming service from all these other ones. And the main answer here is going to be property that is owned by NBC Universal's various studios. They will have a wide variety of library titles, including one of my favorites, Friday Night Lights, yeah. plus everything from Brooklyn Nine-Nine to Keeping Up with the Kardashians to Parenthood to Bates Motel and 30 Rock. All of those titles will be shared with Hulu and other outlets that they're streaming on until those deals expire, at which point most of these will wind up becoming exclusive to Peacock. So the big way to get people in the door is with big favorites and lots of library programming. So yeah. The Office is the great start to that. So when it launches, they say that they're going to have more than 15,000 hours of content. Obviously, original programming is going to be a huge part of that. What do we know about the original programming that's slated to start for this new Peacock service? Well, using the libraries as a backbone, that's going to be really what you look to for originals. So knowing that they have the office in Parks and Recreation, one of the first things that they picked up was a new show from Mike Schur, who created Parks and Recreation and was an executive producer and, of course, recurring actor on The Office. That show will star Ed Helms, who, of course, was a star from The Office. <laughs> right, exactly. And they're going to do the same thing on the drama side. So they will have the library of Ron Moore's sci-fi favorite, Battlestar Galactica. And guess what? what? They're rebooting Battlestar Galactica with one of its most important cable-focused producers, Sam Ismail, creator of Mr. Robot and Amazon's Homecoming. And as for other originals, they're leaning into the people who have eight- and nine-figure overall deals with the company. So Lauren Michaels will have a new docuseries focusing on writers behind SNL, which, by the way, SNL, the entire library, will be available on Peacock. They are also looking to Seth Meyers to exec produce. He's going to do a late-night sketch show. Imagine Jimmy Fallon only doing the opening monologue. That's what he's going to do, but it's going to be with Amber Ruffin, who, of course, is from his show, from Late Night with Seth Meyers, or whatever that show is called, (laughs) Uh, or Late Late Show with Seth Meyers. There's too many late shows, too many of everything. I agree. (laughs) Leslie Goldberg, West Coast television editor at The Hollywood Reporter and co-host of TV's Top 5 Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Last story of the week is about many of the suspects in recent mass shootings and the hate-filled posts that they've been posting to online forums such as 8chan. A lot of times they'll post manifestos, people will share them, discuss, and unfortunately get inspiration to commit other attacks. Large numbers of fatalities are even celebrated as high scores. The difficulty for law enforcement in handling these is that these posts are often anonymous, and when a site gets shut down, people just move on to the next one. For more on this, we spoke to Georgia Wells. She's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal about this online world where mass shooters thrive. Let me start by saying that it really comes down to this, that there are forums online that celebrate mass shooters and they promote white supremacy. They encourage people to carry out attacks and they judge success by how high a kill count these shooters are able to get. And you brought up Brenton Tarrant. And the reason he's celebrated so much is because they see him as having 
a particularly high kill count. Right. And so what we're seeing is these forums are creating a chain of influence that appears to lead from one mass shooting to the next. Yeah. And even when uh, subsequent shooters go on their attacks and let's say they don't kill that many people, which is a good thing for everybody else. But in these forums, they're kind of ridiculed almost there's for saying, oh, you know, they didn't they didn't do a good enough job. On these forums, they will talk about deciding to canonize different shooters. And often they make this decision based on the kill count. And so in the example of Crucius, who is the alleged shooter in El Paso a couple weeks ago on one forum, they decided to make him a saint. And in that same discussion, they decided to not make the alleged shooter in Norway recently a saint because he was overtaken by the worshipers at the mosque. And so that's where you see like how they've created this framework for how they judge the success of these people who are motivated to carry out very violent attacks. Tell us a little bit about where these conversations are taking place. A lot of them are on 8chan, but there's a lot of other websites. There's a new one that popped up called Nchan. Well, it's been around for a while, but people migrate towards there after there's more restrictions on certain websites or websites get taken down. And there are these online forums known as polls, short for politically incorrect. And a lot of the conversations are happening there. So there's 8chan, there's 4chan. There's also groups on Telegram which is a chat app that also has a broadcast feature. And one thing that's interesting to note is that these forums are not the same. They have different rules. They have different kind of social mores. And 8chan is notable as being the site that had the most extreme calls for violence. And now it has been shut down, at least temporarily. But its users are going to other sites, and they appear to be trying to post the same content on those sites that they had been posting on 8chan. So for example, shortly after the shooting in El Paso, the gunman who opened a fire in the mosque in Norway, he allegedly posted a manifesto to Enschan. And Enschan came out after that saying that this was the first time they had seen that behavior on their forum and it was new and they were kind of working to deal with that. And that shows how these users are attempting to make the other sites into their own image. HN was calling itself the darkest reaches of the internet where these people could gather. I know lawmakers and law enforcement officials are trying to understand how these sites work. One of the big problems is that a lot of these postings are anonymous, so you can't really track down these people. And I know Congress was trying to speak to the owner of HN and just kind of nail him down on some of this stuff. But even still, he says that the website is a place for free speech and that they don't want to moderate any of this. Yeah, I mean, you've got to think of this as a very scary version of whack-a-mole. And so you knock one site down and the users move to another site. And so indeed, lawmakers have, like you said, been trying to learn more about how 8chan works. But already these users have moved on to other sites. And really, the, yeah. ch the chilling effect that we see of this is that all these forums do is provide inspiration for people to start acting. And, you know, someone says, hey, I, I support... Brenton Tarrant and what he did, and then it spurs other lone wolf actors to go on their own rampages. Yeah, it's a network of sites, and they appear to be leading from one violent attack to the next. So tell us a little bit about some of the studies that have been done into how people get radicalized on these forums. I know a, a lot of them 
One of the shooters in particular, Mr. Ernest, who was in the San Diego synagogue shooting, he said he had only been lurking on 8chan specifically for about a year and a half. That quickly he was compelled to act on some of these actions. In the writing that John Ernst has said that he posted, he specifically thanks 8chan for what he learned there. And so that gives us a pretty clear view into how he describes his evolution. Then also there's a researcher, Robert Evans, who looked at how 75 kind of extremists online described coming to their views. And in his research, he found that they attributed YouTube videos as shaping their views. And so it appears that people find these YouTube videos that often are cons- push conspiracy theories. And then also on these forums, they will pass them around and also discuss some of the conspiracy theories that appear to drive some of their behavior. I think Mr. Evans, you were talking about, uh, you know, he says they start on YouTube that's pushing these conspiracy theories. They move on to other sites, other places. And 8chan was kind of the end of this journey of radicalization. At that point, you're getting there where people are pushing you to act on certain thoughts and beliefs at that point. We even saw this happening with John Ernst, where a person who was close with him said that ahead of the attack that he is the alleged perpetrator for, described 8chan as the big leagues, that he had been on 4chan and then he had graduated to the more serious forum. And so that's where you see the kind of references to this site where they appear to be getting some of their ideas. So what's the future of these sites then? I know lawmakers and law enforcement officials are trying to get a handle on this, but it seems like everybody just agrees that you can't. They're going to move from one place to another. They're going to find these communities. They're going to go where they want to go to keep talking about this stuff. That's exactly the big question here. So lawmakers are trying to learn more about how these sites can work proactively ahead of potential attacks. And also they're trying to determine if there should be a role for government here in stepping in when there appears to be calls to violence. But these are really tricky questions, particularly in the U.S., where people take the First Amendment really seriously. I know that the spreading of these manifestos, as soon as these things are posted and when these attacks are happening, these manifestos, all this conversation really intensifies in the moment, like almost real time. And we know that the uh, New Zealand mosque shooter He was live streaming the video, obviously, and that was like a big catalyst for people. It's hard to digest really how this inspiration happens. They see it happening on video and then they want to form their own ideas and go and act on there also. But this is a part of the problem, this almost real-time discussion that's happening while a lot of this violence is happening. The live stream part you brought up was fascinating. We spoke with a researcher who talked about the live streams as this twisted form of entertainment. And certainly, like, you could see aspects of that in the tragedy in New Zealand. Also now, when news breaks that there's some shooting happening on these forums, people will start asking for a live stream link because they've been trained to expect it. Yeah, they're expecting it. Yeah, it's so crazy. And and that twisted form of entertainment adds to that whole thing of what's the kill count? How many did he get? You know, it's this whole gamification of it, really. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just hard to really kind of think about how this is really happening. And people are just radicalizing themselves in, in these circles on- online. Georgia Wells, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.